Good morning. Happy Monday. Welcome to Love Babs, Love Talk on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. Start of another great week. And you might notice that Love Babs, Love Talks, Babs Rolls Ivy is not the person you're listening to right now. Babs is away on a writing retreat for a week. And I'm in here trying to do her justice in her stead as Paul Bass. Welcome to a great another week in New Haven, even if we are starting with cloudy skies. And we got a lot to talk about this morning, including at this count, two bank failures in three days. And what that's going to mean, we're going to have the State Bank Com- Commissioner, George Perez. He's scheduled to come on at 920 to talk about what that's going to mean for us in Connecticut, as well as what are some of the banking issues that we face right now. And but first, I want to talk about the other big story this morning, which is the Oscars. And everything, everywhere, all at once took seven Oscars last night. And a man who knows more about movies than anyone else in town, Arnold Gorlick, is welcome. Is joining us here in the studio. Arnold, welcome to Love Babs Love Talk on WNHHFM, and thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm flattered to be invited. Thank you. And Arnold, as everybody knows, used to run the Madison Arts Center for how many, for two decades, right? Arnold, how many years did you run it? Twenty-two years. Twenty-two years, and before that, well, I, you can subtract COVID, I guess. Including COVID, it's 22 years. Mass Arts, which was definitely the premier cinema spot in the state. And before that, he was the welcoming presence at York Square and made that the premier cinema spot in the state. And Arnold's going to help us break down the Oscars. So, Oscar, you, uh, Arnold, you did watch the Oscars last night. I did. And did you watch them at a bar with all sorts of people? Did you watch it cut up at home? or? No, I watched them um, in my attic where we have the TV, and I watched it alone. My wife had no interest whatsoever. So here I was. <laughs> so how was it, R? What'd you think? What's the big takeaway from last night's well, Oscars? There's a part of me which doesn't take take the Oscars seriously. What it fundamentally is is advertising, mm-hmm. and promotion, and <clears throat> so it's not exactly a cold system to really choose choose the best. And it's hard when you're dealing with a artistic things to choose the best. There's lots of background politics or lots of background things which influence things. For example, I was really rooting for Austin uh, Butler, who played Elvis, to mm-hmm. win Best Actor. One of the truly greatest on-screen performances I've ever seen. That said, mm-hmm. let me confess, I didn't see The Whale. Mm-hmm. I purposely haven't seen The Whale. Why would you purposely not see a film? Well, it ha- had to do with what I read on how it dealt with the issue of obesity oh, and, and yeah. so on. It, it, that, but the background story with this is Brendan Fraser had to win. He was an A-list star back in the 80s, and then everything dried up, and he couldn't find work. He was out of work for years, <laughs> and then he got this role. And I believe it's one of the great acting performances of this year or last year, that we're able to see. But the fact that this was a comeback story, I think motivated people who voted in his category, only actors vote in the actors category, Hmm. because they were touched by the backstory of this fine actor, out of work for years, maybe a decade or more, couldn't find any work, and then finds this role and is now nominated for the Academy Award. That's part of the things that go go into it. This That's also what happened with Best Supporting Actor, correct? <laughs> uh, that wasn't the same that, story. The guy had that, had had a great career, and then he hadn't gotten it for a long true, time. But no one was back. invested in his career. No one uh, heard of him that, uh, before. Brendan Fraser was a big star. Right, right, good point. So there wasn't that collapse. It was nobody 
nobody noticed them. Mm-hmm. So how did you feel about the... So the big story, obviously, was everything everywhere at all at once, which is that sort of sci-fi, martial arts, uh, multiverse, mind-blown movie, in my opinion. And it won seven Oscars, right. including Best Picture, Best Actors, Best uh, Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actors. Did that surprise you? Do you think it was deserved? Because you just saw the movie, correct? Uh, I saw the movie the night before. And uh, I'm going to go against the grain a little bit. I didn't dislike the movie. But I thought there were two better movies which handled the same subject oh. of multi-realities. One is Run, Lola, Run, the German movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one is Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow. Mm-hmm. I thought both of those movies were better movies. Mm. I thought that Everything Everywhere All at Once was overstated and overstimulating. What I admired about the movie is, because I love the medium of movies so much, there are certain things that only movies can do. Everything, everywhere, all at once could have only been a movie. That's true. And one thing that really interested me, now by the time you saw it, Arnold, you kind of knew what to expect, correct? Even though you can't, there's so many scenes you can't. When I saw it back in the theater when it opened, I had no idea what it was going to be. So here I'm watching this thing, what's this, martial arts? kind of weird. Or was this like one of those art house movies about a you know Chinese immigrant family at the laundry and then all of a sudden it's going off the rails in these really kind of exciting fun ways and by the end it was interesting to me how there were four five storylines at a time with every scene by the time they established that they put a lot of work into each of those storylines like a lot of elaborate right plot narrative a lot of lot of elaborate um scenery and costumes what did you think about that? Is that part we thought was over the top? Because I enjoyed that over the top part. I think it was over the top. They had stuff like, you know, uh, hot dog faces and dildos and all that kind of stuff. No. Uh, it, first of all, I didn't understand about the hot dog <laughs> finger. I, I just didn't understand what was necessary about her, what it did. But I just thought that it was, that everything was coming at me too fast, mm. too, too densely. And... My emotions weren't catching up with it. By the way, I, I've always had a crush on Michelle Yeoh. Uh-huh. So well, I, it's an I interesting. Would... It's an interesting thing. It's about too fast, too much, because that was definitely their point, right? Yeah. I mean, the part that got me the most as a dad was when they're the rocks, and the the daughter rock tries to keep getting away from the mother rock, and then falls right. off the cliff. That was just. That was right. I just thought brilliant. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. But it's the kind of movie, Arnold. I don't know. You saw the movie a couple of days ago. It stays with me months later. That doesn't often happen with movies. Oh, it's it's going to stay with me. The imagery, it, it's powerful. There's no question about it. But but you think it didn't deserve seven Oscars? No, I I can't say that. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't take the Academy Awards that seriously. Even when I was working in, in the business, I like to see what, what would win. I remember there was only one time that I was really would really be upset if somebody didn't win. And Marion Cotillon played Edith Piaf uh-huh. in La Vie en Rose. To this day, I still think that's the greatest on-screen performance I've ever seen in my life. Mm. She's French. It was a foreign language movie, and I thought they would never give it to her. And I said to whomever I was watching the movie with, I'm going to give up my passport if Marion Cotillon doesn't win the Oscar. And she won it. Oh, good. She's still got your passport. Because, you know, yeah, that was the, the Trump years. You might have needed it. We're talking to Arnold Gorlick. Who knows more no, about... it wasn't the Trump years. This oh. was in the 90s. Oh, okay. okay. 
No, not the 90s, the early 2000s. Okay, so it's something like that. You got the early Bush years. Or something like We're that. talking to Arnold Gorlick. Until recently, he, he started and he ran Mass in Art Cinemas, and he's the most knowledgeable guy in movies I know. Lives in Westville, and we're talking about the Oscars. You talk about the Oscars, you can't take it too seriously. You said it's an advertising vehicle for the industry. It is a national touchstone. Do you still think you think it's true that it's still one of the few cultural moments, like the Super Bowl, although I don't watch either of them personally, but that so many people watch from so many different backgrounds, a lot of people get together to watch it, that it, it somewhat forms a common reality, like when that stupid thing happened with the Will Smith slap last year. Everybody was talking about it, right? You know, and they, They'll be talking about everything every year all at once. Do you think there's some value in that, Arnold? And do you think it's true that the Oscars remains a cultural touchstone, something that brings a lot of people in, a, in our nation together around a common event and story? I think it's true. I, know, I don't know what the ratings were last night, but they've been in dramatically declining rating, having dramatically de declining rating situation. I, you know, before COVID, each year, fewer and fewer people watching the Oscars. I don't know about globally, though, but mm -hmm. I knew in the I know in the United States. Have you heard what the ratings were last I night? I don't. And do we need the Oscars? Yeah, I think it's nice. Just to have that. Harry says he couldn't get through the complete movie. I was not impressed with everything everywhere all at once. Harry Joseph, our station manager, just was, was well, chiming in. I wasn't in. as impressed with it as you, as I said. Yeah. Uh, no, I it was my favorite movie I've seen probably this century. <laughs> it just blew me away so much, Arnold. I just couldn't <laughs> stop thinking about that movie. <laughs> I was blown away by Elvis. The only one I didn't like in the movie won an Oscar. I didn't love Jamie Lee Curtis, and I can't figure out if that's because I didn't like her acting or if I thought the role wasn't written great, if it was a little overstated. Whereas I thought the daughter, who also is in Miss Maisel, I thought she was terrific. I would have given her yeah. the supporting. I don't yeah, know. She cried through the whole evening. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> here's some happiness. Tears of happiness. Now, Arnold, you had one take about a movie that didn't make it, or at least an actress who didn't make it, Danielle Deadweiler, who was in Emmett Till. What, did she? Did Emmett Till show up last night? Do you think it should have? There's no doubt that the movie Till should have shown up. And I don't care if it would be nominated for Best Picture or not, but Danielle Deadweiler played Mamie Till, Emmett Till's mother. That truly is one of the greatest on-screen performances I've ever seen. Really? There's a moment where she was in the courthouse in Mississippi and was on a platform. And, of course, the racism was filling the courtroom as well, how she was treated, how people talked to her, her lawyers, her entourage, and so on. And the camera was looking up at her as she was testifying as they were asking a provocative uh, questions like, how do you know that's your son? Because mm. you're supposed to know the story of Emmett Till. Right. He was just, he was disfigured beyond recognition by his beating. In about 10 minutes with an unbroken camera, you could see the contortions in the woman's face, her fluttering eyes, her eyes rolling, her grief, her authenticity in talking about what it meant to see her son in that state and who he was and what her relationship with him was, for that 10 minutes alone of the unbroken, it was it was one full take. It took my breath away. It was one of the great performances truly this year. That she was a nominator for Best Actress, I think is a crime. Why do you the think reason, that was about the politics of the This was about, maybe uh, politics had to do with it, but... Wouldn't it be the opposite? Isn't there a, a 
how that whole phrase years ago, hashtag Oscar's so white, don't they go out of their way now to show that they're going to recognize a civil rights theme? Yeah, uh, but a simple thing has to happen. I don't know what the number is, but a critical mass of uh, people have to see the movie and be able to vote on it. Oh, you think they didn't see the movie? Did the movie not get enough attention? It didn't reach that critical mass of uh, members of the Academy seeing it. It was streaming online, but I insisted on seeing... Uh, I knew how badly I wanted to see this movie. I was 10 years old when it happened. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was no surprises in it because I knew the story intimately. The question is, how do you tell the story again generations later so it has impact and freshness, correct? And did they succeed in doing that? I think so. I think so. You know, since it's a movie for me that had no surprises because it was just telling of a historical event, I think faithfully... My former film buyer was very touched by it, and he didn't know anything about Emmett Till. He's 10 mm. years younger than I, and he's not a reader. So what, do you, what is going on with movies these days? We came back for the pandemic. People, some people are going back to the theaters, but streaming changed the industry forever. Is there? How do we watch movies now, and how will we be watching movies for years to come, and what will be the fate of in-person movies? That's why I got out. Um... Uh, movies have lost their aura, have lost their immediacy. There is no substitution without the collective of watching a movie in a movie theater with other people. Uh -huh. Sometimes when we laugh at something on a movie, it's because if we laugh spontaneously, we're sometimes embarrassed that we laughed at what we just saw. Uh -huh. Sitting in a crowded movie theater, to be embarrassed that you just laughed creates more, creates more laughter. You don't have this anymore. People walking out in the movie in droves saying, gee, i got to tell my friend Paul Bass, he's got to see this movie. It doesn't happen anymore. There's, it, there's been a cultural breakdown. There's been more atomization of the society. I made a joke about this, never thinking that this day would come so soon. It was going to come with or without COVID. COVID just accelerated it. Mm -hmm. But I used to say there's going to be a new category for the Oscars. Best movie made for a cell phone. <laughs> but Arnold, okay, you're being like you and I and most of us of our generations can be, which is the world's changing. We think we're losing something, which we are. Are we gaining anything? Is there more of like an auteur style based on even short attention span um, work on video? Or is there a kind of flowering, independent, DIY cinema emerging longer form on, you know, Vivo or other kinds of platforms? Let me say this. One genre of movie is dead in movie theaters. Art. Art house movies, which I played. There's nothing to play. Top Gun was a big hit, what they call a blockbuster. And it by sequel, sequels of easy to get right. the people in. And I don't think that Martin Scorsese was wrong when he talked about the Marvel uh, comics movies as not being true cinema. I actually share, share that with him. But are there other avenues for this? I only see a downside. But it's is there more good work being produced? On different venues, just not in a mass way that we're all going to see it the way that we have lost, as you said, going all together and all having watched this and saying, I'm going to show my friends and hearing how other people react. Are there other positive developments in how video can I be done? I guess that there are more people who are breaking through in the in movie making, but to me, it's an inexorable loss. I, 
I don't. I'm not questioning whether it's an execrable loss. I'm just asking, will there be positive for like people who don't have the means, who wouldn't have broken into Hollywood before, who unlike Robert Townsend aren't going to be able to max out their credit cards and get incredibly lucky to make you know, what was it called Hollywood <laughs> Shuffle, right? Hollywood like that doesn't shuffle. happen that often. But good. but for Hollywood most shuffle. for most cases, people now can kind of do some really talented people with no ins, no training, could probably do pretty good work on their computers and put together. Well, look at it. The mm -hmm. editor of Everything Everywhere All at Once, he says, hey, this is my second movie. <laughs> the 35, the people who made it, right. So right. now would that have shown in your theater? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely it would have shown in my theater. So before yeah. I let you go, Arnold, anything optimistic you could say about the Oscars, about the future of new forms of video, or are we just going to say it's all got hell and it's over? <laughs> It's a big loss to me. Yeah, of course. Of my course. passion okay. in my life. I don't. I'm glad there's a way for movies not to disappear. But Marshall McLuhan even wrote about what it means to look, be, look at a television versus a movie screen. Mm -hmm. And the television hypnotizes our eyes. There's natural movement. We naturally scan, according to Marshall McLuhan, anything we look at. We cannot fail but scan. Our eyes move. Apparently, television and its pixelation freezes our eyes where we don't do that scanning and mm. experiencing thing as we do experience a movie as we do in real life when we're looking at something. Television oh. takes something away and numbs us. And what about um? What about smaller screens? Is that even more severe? Because that's doing havoc on our attention spans and our connection to other human beings in the natural world. I say every day. I dream about going back to a world before computers and cell phones. It's, it's, uh, I mean, one of the Daniels talked about how fast life is moving and it's movies take years to make, but the internet is moving in milliseconds. Yeah. And how, how to keep up with that. It's hard, hard to stop and think sometimes. Right. But I, I am just, wondering also, I feel I'm in a state of grief. I'm wondering Arnold, and this is something I'm not excited about or even, happy about but i'm wondering whether we're actually evolving into different kinds of species the way we're going to function with continual notification and assistance and monitoring of ai devices whether i don't do this but so many people do it with their heartbeats and their steps and checking their blood sugar levels but also what you're going to buy what you're going to watch what you're going to listen to when i listen to music now when we were growing up listening to radio wait to see what come on i now actually love when youtube sometimes just plays different music for me Based right. on its algorithm, but there's also something a little scary about it. <laughs> yeah, what's scary about that is you don't discover something new. Because well, I do actually. I've discovered more new music oh, because of that than I, I probably last year than I had in the last twenty years. Well, so, Netflix, based on what you've looked at, yeah, offers you uh, uh, narrow choices based on who they think you are already by an algorithm. Right, it's playing towards you. Uh, so much of it works on uh, uh, short attention spans. They know that exciting you, making you angry, or high emotional things, it doesn't make you more thoughtful where there are complex things to think about. I agree with that. Although I will say that I got a 30-minute jam band file from something they saw from my algorithm that sounded pretty good that I would have never <laughs> heard this Texas duo. I'm with you about like what social media has done and how the news has evolved and the way it's always supposed to excite and upset you and rather have you be thoughtful. 
I do see some glimmer of hope sometimes of how it can be used well, especially in the music field. Because when we really think about Arnold, we grew up with Top 40, right? WABC. Right. So, like, that was just a few songs, right? right. And, when, and when you talk about the news, everyone watched Huntley Brinkley and, or Cronkite. It really was not a big... People long for those days where we watched the same thing and trusted it, but there's also the other side that you didn't get to hear as many variety. And now it's Tower of Babel with so many different voices competing and it becomes a clamor as you said it becomes appealing to us not to think but to just react quickly but i do see possibilities and i see it in video too i see possibilities for voices to emerge throughout the cracks you know when you did art houses that wasn't mass market it got to be right you were ahead of your time and the the formula you hit on became a good formula at the risk of flattering myself is um distributors i'm talking about big distributors sony warners would call on me, my film buyer of the theater, to open a picture, let's say Finding Forrester or something like that. Uh, do you have a screen for us on January 24th? Why? We want to open it at the Madison Art Cinemas and we're prepared to clear the shoreline. Now, I couldn't demand that they clear the shoreline to play the movie with me. They had motivations for that, and I, that would be off topic to tell you what their motiv- motivations were. Mm-hmm. But... Um, they were relying on me because the standing of the cinema was so strong that they believed that by opening in the Madison Art Cinemas, it conferred an aura or a mystique on the picture that could establish it in a way that opening it in the multiplexes wouldn't. So I would have it exclusively, sometimes for six weeks, and then it would expand as if it was established locally and so on. They were very stingy with their uh, opening platforms, and I was always grateful and flattered to be part of their first platforms. That's that. that's exciting. And what year was that? What year was that, Arnold? Up until 2018. Wow. 2019, it ended. Um, what? So that was before the pandemic that ended that. And what was the reason? Um, habits were changing. Streaming had already made its uh, had already made its impact. What was shocking to me is when Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers closed their screening rooms and their offices in New York City and bought out their heads of distribution. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, these are people who knew me for decades and I knew them for decades. It's not that I was important, but I knew them when they were just doing ad placement in, for local papers throughout the country and now the heads of studios. So that was the continuum for me and I would see them at dinners and conventions and whatever. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, when they were calling on me because they also knew that I treated their movies as if they entrusted me with their child, that I didn't just put it on the screen, put the posters up in the trailers, hope everybody came. I made curtain appearances. I talked from my heart. If a movie had to be seen, that the, that my clientele wouldn't get to see if it weren't in this smaller venue. Mm-hmm. And we go on. So... They, uh, I, I lost my train. That's of okay. That's okay, Arnold. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Who better to talk about the morning after the Oscars and the future of the industry than with Arnold Gorlick, the visionary founder of Madison Art Cinema, resident of Westville, and always has an original take. Arnold, thanks for joining us on Love Babs Love Talk. Now we're going to talk about banks, a much happier subject. Can with I still the, watch, the, or do I have to get off of Zoom? You should get off, but if you listen to go to the New Haven Independent website on the top left you can click up there arnold thank you so much for joining us you're listening to love babs love talk but you're not listening to babs you're not listening to babs rolls ivy you're listening to paul bass filling in for the week for babs doing my best 
And we're going to talk about the biggest story in America now with um, the person in Connecticut who's in the best position to help us figure it out, George Perez. George Perez is the commissioner of banking for the state of Connecticut. And of course, we know him in New Haven because he grew up here in the Hill and he was the president of our board of alders and was sort of our, our big star going to Hartford. George Perez, thank you so much for joining us this morning at WNHHFM. It's my pleasure, Paul, and thank you for the invitation and opportunity to talk to your listeners. And, you know, I'm looking forward. We said you're going to come on one day for a longer interview about all the great work you're doing at the Banking Commission. You are the longest-serving state commissioner, am I right? I think I need one more year. Oh, yeah? Who, uh, In terms of people who are currently commissioners in the Lamont administration? Oh, no, no, the Lamont administration, I think I'm tied with with uh, with the DSS commissioner. <laughs> so what were you referring to? Are you going to be the longest serving banking commissioner ever? Yes, correct. Oh, not bad. Not bad, George. When Was it 2018 or 2017 when you became the commissioner? About 2015. Oh, you see how fast years go. Oh, my goodness. You look yeah. younger than you did, but must be must be doing good things for you. So, George, the biggest story now is that twice in the last three days, not in Connecticut, but twice in the last three days, a bank has failed. We had our second biggest bank failure in the history of the United States with Silicon Valley Bank. This is stuff you know, of course. I'm just filling in the listeners. On Friday, and then a second bank, Signature Bank in New York, failed yesterday. How does What's the reaction here in Connecticut? What does this mean for us? Well, the first thing I would like to say to people, don't panic. The banks in Connecticut are strong. Uh, and the situation that happened in California and New York are much different than what you find in Connecticut, in particular in, in California, which is the biggest one, which is the one I'm going to focus on the most. The customer base was primarily high-tech, venture capitalists, uh, fintechs, really big companies. And about 80% of the depositors have more than $250,000 in the bank, which as people may remember from school uh, or reading in the paper, uh, FDSC only insured deposit up to 100000 and recently, you know, like five, six years ago, they changed that to two fifty. The good news is that uh, the Biden administration slashed the FDIC Federal Reserve, which are independent, but they're considered to be part of the administration, have announced, announced yesterday at this around 615, that they're going to make all depositors full. What that means is it doesn't matter if you had a dollar, if you had, like in some cases, some companies have $3 billion in, in that bank. Uh, the deposits are going to be a make whole. And starting today, when the bank opens, they should be able to have access to it, and they should be able to have their online banking and all that. Now, if they walk into the bank and they want to withdraw $3 billion, that's going to be a little hard because no branch keeps that kind of catch at hand. But it should be business as usual because the FDIC and the Federal Reserve, but in particular, it's the FDIC because the FDIC insurance, have decided that they're going to make deposits whole. What does that mean for... Now, you were talking about Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, yeah. guaranteeing when you put on $250,000 in a bank, that much is covered if a bank ever fails. And, you know, we do that. We move our accounts around, for instance, at the Independent to make sure that there's not more than that in any one account. Is this going to change the game now, George? Because they're saying that for the bank in New York as well. They're going to cover people's deposits above that 250. Is that 250 not going to be a real number anymore? I cannot speak for the FDIC, right? Uh, what I could say is, based on, on what I know, they cannot afford to do it for anybody, right? Because people haven't paid for it. Uh, I think, and, the, the re, and I was in several meetings over the weekend uh, where this stuff was discussed, uh, not necessarily with FBSC, but with other banking commissioners and the conference or state bank supervisors. Uh, the main reason they're doing this is, and, the, and 
And the big difference from now to 2A is they're not going to make shareholders and investors whole. Those people are going to lose their money. So that's a big difference. Second, they expect that they're going to sell the bank in an auction. And they're going to generate enough money to be able to cover for the cost, right? So it's going to come up from the insurance fund. Because the bank is so big and has assets, they feel they're going to break even, if not actually make a little bit of money. Uh, there's no guarantee of that, right? If that doesn't happen, they already announced that if the net proceeds of auctioning the bank or breaking it up into little pieces and selling specific assets don't generate enough net proceeds, then they're going to issue a special assessment to the rest of the industry to make up for the difference. Gotcha. So this is a one, this is a quote unquote one time exception for those two, namely because not so much for, because the investors are losing everything as they should because they took a risk, right? And they made decisions and they, they made their own decisions, right? Uh, but because of the impact it was going to have on the depositors, especially like in the case of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, there were so, so many large depositors that they would put them out of business if those deposits were to be lost. Now, you know, your first point was don't panic because you don't want people to be doing around the bank. Right. Everyone's obviously scared about that today. Joe Biden, the president, is going to make a, a statement because he wants to calm people. So it's true the Silicon Valley Bank was so different because it was mostly startups and tech and fintech. And yes. they didn't, most of them had more deposits over 250. But if I'm not mistaken, you know so much more about this than I do, George. It was a combination of factors that led to that bank's collapse. Right including That's that interest rates went up so fast that in the past interest rates go up slowly so depositors don't all take their money out of banks to get more interest somewhere else, right? And now well, it that bank like... was actually paying high interest rates. Oh, they were? Yeah, they're, they're okay. So that wasn't a factor there? No, interest rates was a factor, but for a different reason. This is a bank that grew real fast in the last six to eight years because of the fintechs and the, and the high-tech companies, right? And what they did is they took the money and invested it in U.S. bonds primarily. Other, other investments, but a lot of it were U.S. bonds. But they did that two, three years ago when the rates were lower. And, and the average yield in the portfolio was 1.79, which was a good yield back then when the prime rate was zero, right? Uh, but today, the prime rate is seven and three quarters. On Friday, the three-month uh, T-bill was 4.89. The... The uh, one-year T-bill has been uh, going back and forth between five, five, I mean, 4.9 to 5.18. So in today's market, that year 1.79 is no longer good. If they were to hold those bonds into its maturity, they would have collected back all their money. They would have not mm -hmm. lost any money. But what happened was because they were having cash flow issues and, and, and some real famous big-time um, Brokers firms were starting to recommend that people withdraw the money. On Thursday alone, $42 billion withdrawals were done. They wow. ran out of cash. And yeah. when they try to sell their bonds, so what they did is to make up, to come out with cash, they try to sell part of their portfolio. Because they were selling it early and the rates had gone up and their yield was so low, they lost, they, they sold a $1.8 billion loss, which wow. only made the cash flow problems worse. So are there any then banks in Connecticut that have that issue of too much? invested in treasury bonds? The good news on banks are so small that they cannot, they will never have that kind of exposure, right? Uh, I'll be able to answer that question more concrete later today. We are doing an analysis of that. We're not aware of it. Um, so your preliminary because, analysis is, is that, that we don't have any banks that, in trouble? No, no. 
not, not in Connecticut, not Connecticut Charter, right? Uh, and primarily because our, our market is different, right? We don't have a lot of high techs, a lot of fintechs, right? We're not New York, we're not. And crypto California. was the problem with Sovereign, correct? Yes, crypto was big in New York, right? It's also big in, in, in California. In fact, one of the biggest company that would have been in big trouble was the fifth largest crypto company in the nation that had almost 26% of their reserve at Savings Bank of uh, Silicon Bank of Silicon Valley Bank. Bank. Yep. Yeah. So, so you... yes, that's one of the reasons why I think that the Fed came in. I mean, FDIC in particular to make deposits whole. Are you getting so a lot of increase? We don't have any those kind of deposit mix. I mean, our deposit mix, like for instance. They had a very few true retail customers, meaning people like you and I as customers, right? Or, or, or like the bodega down the corner or, or, the, or the sneakers shop down the corner, right? And the, their customer base was really big. I mean, Raku, you know, uh, I have a couple of names here. Uh, uh, Set Recorder, all big, humongous companies that were all fintech companies at one time uh, because they did a lot of lending to those type of entities, which not, a lot of banks don't specialize in. And we don't have that in Fairfield County with the uh, hedge fund industry? No, the banks that, that are state charter, you know, don't... How about regional banks that are chartered somewhere else but do business here? For instance, I go to Key Bank or... Yeah, I don't regulate them. I, I, you know, that data can be accessible through the call reports, but they're much bigger, right? And, and, and they also have a customer base that's much more diverse, right? They don't have 80% of one particular industry as customers. That's the key there. It's concentration. The, the thing that we're learning from this, which is similar to what happened in 2A, that's the only thing that's in common, is concentration risk has not gone away. And as regulators, we need to do a better job in cracking down when you have an entity that has that kind of concentration. In fact, to, to be fair to my colleagues in California, they try to do that. And the bank, that bank and other banks went to Congress and tried to say that, we're being too mean, too tough, and then we should be more lenient. Senator Tom Scott took up that call for them just two days ago. Did you see that? His timing wasn't very good. George Press is a state banking commissioner. So this is a big day for you, George, isn't it? I would imagine that your office is fielding nonstop inquiries from the public. You said you're putting together an assessment of our banks just to reassure people. I hear you very loud and clear telling people don't panic. We're not going to have bank failures here. You don't want people running on deposits. What's your day look like? What's your... What are some of the steps you guys are going to take? Well, besides a couple uh, interviews like yours, uh, you're the first one. Thank you. Uh, at one o'clock, I'm going to meet with all the CEOs in Connecticut, mm. not only state state charter, but but you know the big the big uh, national banks like the Bank of Americas and so forth. Now, in that one, I don't expect the DCO of Bank of America to be in this meeting, but the regional president. Uh, where in the state charter ones, all the presidents and their chief financial officers will be in the meeting jointly with the Connecticut Bankers Association. And part of that is to go over the announcement to make sure to hear anything that we hear out there uh, and to make sure not, not, people are not panicking, right? Uh, and, you know, encourage people to, to uh, communicate with the customers, right? One of the biggest issues that happened in this instance was the communication between the bank and the customers was really, really bad and with the public. In fact, not only did the bond self was a fiasco for them, but then they try to issue stocks. And because of the run on the bank and the lack of communication, that collapsed too. So that's when the Fed tried to come in and, and bail them out because they didn't have enough cash. 
So the key here is communication, reassuring the public. Connecticut banks are much different than those two banks that we're talking about. It says our market is different. We, we don't have that. So you're meeting with CEOs, I assume that's by Zoom, George? Yes, uh, it's all going to be done by Zoom. And you're meeting with them just to get information from them and to spread the word about your concern about keeping communication lines open with, with customers. I hear you saying yeah. that your staff is just renewing its assessments of the state of the banks. Anything else going on today? Are you fielding a lot of calls from just everyday consumers? Not, to be honest with you, not one single call today. Really? From any consumer. Wow. Uh, not one. Uh, so that's good. I mean, that's that is good. And, and that's the way it should be. No Connecticut bank has been taken over, and there's no reason for it that I know of for mm -hmm. any Connecticut bank to be taken over by the feds or us or anybody else in the near future. And, um, you, and you remember what it's like to work at the banks and be in those meetings when you're running a bank. So I can, yes. I can imagine that you'll know when you go on this call today what, what people need to hear. Yes, in fact, I, not only through merchants, but I, I actually worked at a bank that was taken over by the FDIC. Oh, really? That, that, yeah, First Constitution. Oh, yeah, yeah. Way, way back in the day, uh, the Western Bank ended up buying it. I want to say that was the uh, mid-90s, early to mid-90s. Yes, yes, that was in the mid-90s. And I remember that, that they had done a lot of these um, co-loans where they took equity stakes in companies. Wasn't that one of their correct, big mistakes? Correct. Yeah. What happens is when a bank deviates from the cookie cut, like, like the, what I call the cookie cutter approach, right? On mm -hmm. Mortgages, car loans, you know, home equities, and they start going and, and, and specialize in particular fields or really high concentrations. That's when you get in trouble, you know. Oh, that's when you tend to have issues. What do you remember from that incident when you were there at the when you were present at the takeover? Well, uh, at that time, I was I was an assistant vice president, which is the lowest level of, of management. Uh, I have very little to do with what caused the issue. But I mean, as an employee, I mean, you feel depressed, right? You're going to lose your job, or you could lose your job, right? In my case. The surviving entity who bought it offered me a, a job, which I didn't took because I didn't want to travel outside of New Haven. So I went with the competition. Uh, the other thing is that there's a lot of secondary market that gets impacted by this too, right? I mean, there are people like like United Way, right? Those donations don't want to come from those banks, right? Uh, they're the laundry mines, right? And their grocery stores, their restaurants. So those employees used to go and eat lunch and so forth. Right. So, so, so there's a lot of impact that happens beyond the depositors and, and, and the investors. Uh, so, I mean, it was not fun. I mean, as much. Well, uh, I'm glad we got you at the helm to make sure you're not, people aren't going to have you. a repeat of that scenario. And can I wish you luck today dealing with the CEOs, helping to uh, reassure the public. And thanks so much for making time, George Perez, State Banking Commissioner. Tied for longest serving current state employee on the route to becoming longest serving bank <laughs> I commissioner. State, I mean, state commissioner, excuse me, not state employee at all. State commissioner. George, thanks so much for making time. We miss you in New Haven and we're glad things are going well up in Hartford. All right. Thank you, Paul. And have a good luck today in dealing with this. You're listening thank, to Love. You're listening to Love Babs, Love Talk on WNHHFM uh, 103.5, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. And I'm filling in for Babs Rolls Ivy, who's away at a um, conference this week, a writing conference. And I'm sitting in her chair, and I can't live up to how she does it, but I'll, I'll be doing my best. And we heard from George Perez there, who used to be the Board of Alders president in New Haven.
He had a long career here. He grew up here, and now he's a state banking commissioner. He uh, he is the tied for the longest-serving commissioner in government. He predated the Lamont administration, and he said he's on his way to becoming the longest-serving bank commissioner in a year. And this is, is going to be his moment of sunlight because for the last uh, three days, we've had two bank failures in, in Connecticut. I mean, in, in the nation, not in Connecticut. We have Silicon Valley Bank in California and Sovereign Bank in New York. And so obviously there's a lot of concern today that other banks are going to have problems, have runs uh, from depositors. The attention's focusing on banks like First Republic that are similar to the banks that failed. As you heard George Perez say, Silicon Valley Bank really was focused on the tech industry, FinCon, which is financial, FinTech, which is financial tech. And they had a, a, they made some, he thinks, some very unwise investment decisions in treasury bonds that didn't give them the cash they needed on hand to pay um, when they, uh, when, when there was the run on the bank. He's, he's confident that's not going to happen here. In New York, the bank is very tight in the crypto industry. So I hope George right. I trust George. I agree with him that it's a good idea not to, uh, not to panic or anything like that. I mean, you know, every headline. I was thinking about how in the context of social media, news travels faster. There's more of a danger. But now we're going to go and say hello to Nora Grace Flood of the New Haven Independent is here, has a word on the street. Good morning, Nora. It's nice to see you. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Good. Boy, you're in loud and clear. Good, good job. Oh. Good to know. Yeah, I did just get an upgrade for my iPhone. You so. really did? You just got an upgrade? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got to look into that because I never sound this good when I'm out on the street doing word on the street. So what's the word on the street, Nora? Who you got? Yeah, so I'm at the Bottle Redemption Centers of America. I Ooh, think that's the name of this Great site, choice. Um, right off the Boston Post Road. And I've got Suki here to talk to us. Um, so I'm going to turn the camera around and ask Suki, what's the word on the street? And the word on the street today is injustice. Mm. We're talking about injustice for the homeless, the homeless in New Haven, All and right. what the city is doing to get rid of us. <laughs> yeah. So, um, could we start with what we're doing here today? Um, we are. We're um, we're turning in bottles. I go around New Haven every day, collect bottles, um, bring them in, help support. You know, get heat and food and stuff for me and my husband. Um, and that's what we were doing this morning. It's kind of a look into our life. <laughs> yeah. And is this typically how you spend your morning? This is. This is how I spend my morning and usually my afternoons, too. <laughs> yeah. And tell me a little bit more about that. I know Suki has, um, she calls it her loop. <laughs> yeah, my loop. I do it every day. Um, I Basically, I go all around New Haven. Um, and there are lots of businesses. You know, people get to know you. They see you. They save bottles for you. They'll give them to you when you come by. And it's just, you know. Yeah. How much time do you typically spend collecting bottles um, on a given day? I, I'm there more than I am anywhere else. I, I think <laughs> I probably spend an average of six hours a day, you know, walking at least doing this. So. What area do you cover? Um, I, I cover almost all of New Haven from um, over here on the boulevard, clear down to like the green. So wow. I, I walked everywhere, <laughs> all over Yale. <laughs> Good workout. <laughs> um, and how much, how many bottles? Could we kind of quantify how many bottles you deposited today? I think it's okay. impressive. Um, well, we would have to look at the tickets, but I mean, if yeah. I was a bottle, you'd think twenty a dollar today. We did just under twenty dollars for this morning, and that was just, you know, for last night. So I have right. Um, and yeah, can we expand on that idea of injustice? Um, it's a big day. It is. It's a big day for Tent City, New Haven. Um, the city has uh, told us we had to do all kinds of things this day. Um, we keep doing them, and then all of a sudden they put a seventy-two hour notice, and today they're coming to kick us out so we'll see what what happens if we had somewhere else to go there 
obviously we wouldn't live in Sioux City. <laughs> right. And the background here is that there's an encampment right off El Grasso Boulevard um, where about 20 um, people without stable housing have been staying for around three years. A week ago, um, the city put notices on all of the tents saying that if uh, the residents did not meet certain standards of, I think, quote, clean living, yeah. um, they were going to shut down the encampment. Uh, Suki was one of the big players in actually cleaning up the encampment. Um, she spent six hours a day for about a week um, just clearing debris out of the site. Um, and the city told everyone that they could stay. We wrote an article about the fact that 10 cities seemed here to stay. And was it yesterday? Yeah, just just um, two days ago, they they came back. I was actually out when they came and put the notices on the tents. This kind of blindsided us, you know, but um, also, yeah. you know, certain city people involved you know had approached me separately and are trying to get you know some of us to leave you know Whether yeah that's right i don't know <laughs> yeah um can you say more about that how has the city approached you what have um, they offered well they asked right after that um i guess the publicity was bad then no mm. one wants that so they approached me and my husband and offered to buy us bus tickets out of state if we wanted to leave but we had to leave right now mm. you know and we were supposed to give our answer by today but today's yeah. When it's all going down. So, yeah. So, can PM, you, you know, if you want to show their support for homeless in New Haven, come down to all across the boulevard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, could you talk a little bit about what's going through your mind? How do you make a decision here? You technically have the option to, you're originally from Georgia. Right? I am. I'm originally from Georgia. Um, I came here because my husband's father is ill and his family is here. And um, we've kind of made a home here and we've made, made lots of relationships with people here. And, uh, and we really do try, you know, like, um, the one thing I like about what I do is it's good for everyone. It's good for the environment. It's good for the city of New Haven. And I just wish that they could see that, you know? Yeah. So even though we might not be valued citizens in the eyes of the city, you know, we're, we're still people and we still care about our city. Yeah. And so your plan is to try to stay at the encampment? Yeah, stand in our ground. So whether we, we all go down together or not, <laughs> we're, we're going to be there. Yeah. So. Um, and do you think... Is that primarily out of um, necessity in terms of thinking about the future? You really want to stay at Ten City? That's the best case scenario? Or is it about the community that you've built in? And um, and I've known other people that have stayed on the streets, and and it's much, much scarier scenario when you're sleeping just anywhere. And, you know, and we really are a community. Yeah. We care about each other. Yeah. Um, What do you think you'll do if the encampment is closed down today? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no clue. So I guess we'll just we'll, we'll start. You know, all I can do is remain positive and pray for the best. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to let Paul weigh in here, too. Paul, do you have any questions you'd like to well, ask? I'm sorry that you, you don't know where you're going to be sleeping tonight, Suki. I hope you find a place. Have, has the city offered yeah. you beds in any facilities, whether a shelter, no, supportive no, housing? They, they offered, they say that they were going to send people to help us and different workers and things, but they, they always say that and then it never comes through. Um, so uh, they, they really have very little interest in what happens to any of us. They just don't want it to look bad mm. on them. <laughs> w- would you want to be living, let's say, in a transitional shelter or in a supportive housing environment? Um, I mean, possibly. I, I mean, that, that could be. A lot of those places, though, um, it's hard to stay together, especially um, if you're, you know, you have a significant other or situation, and um, and that's the one thing we have is we just have each other. Mm. Yeah. How did you and your husband meet? 
so we were dairy farmers <laughs> so yeah we just met on a farm in georgia and fell in love and um, and can you tell our audience what your husband does for work as well? Um, my husband is a handyman. He um, works at the new TMT smoke shop down there on Congress. Um, he remodeled that whole building. It's beautiful. And he does work um, all over the city for anybody and everybody. We do a little bit of everything. So. Yeah. Um, and what would you, how would you like to see the city um, treat Tent City? I just, I just wish they would realize it would be and we just want somewhere safe to be and and the same respect and rights that other people have, you know. And uh, it shouldn't be that we're wondering, you know, from day to day, you know, whether we're just going to have somewhere to lay our head and, and not freeze to death. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and what are your plans for the rest of the day? So how do you prepare for the city's um, entry I'm to your be home? There. There's people there now. Um, everybody, you know, they, they tried to keep the site clean, but it doesn't matter really what we do. Um, they already made their decisions. They decided to push us out there. Yeah. Um, and you were saying a lot of people there you think are in denial that yeah. this is going to happen. Yeah, a lot of people are. Um, but, you know, yeah. what we can do is hope for that. Yeah. Um, and could you talk a little, I'm, I think our audience would like to hear more about you. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, could you tell us a little bit about your history as a farmer? Um, uh, so, I mean, I just, I, I kind of, I was new to dairy farming. I uh, only uh, worked there for a very short time, but I've uh, I've had the opportunities in life to to do several things, you know. So it's just um, looking forward to whatever the next. Yeah, and you were saying so you've been at Tent City since July mm -hmm. of last year. Yeah. Okay. Um, and had you experienced homelessness before that point? Um, ever? No, I had never actually been homeless. It was totally something we had never thought, you know, until COVID, we were always fun. Mm, yeah. How did this change your worldview to experience not having stable housing for this period of time? It just makes you appreciate what you do have. You know, it may not be much, but we appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Paul, final question? I just want, I wish you well, Suki. I hope that I hope things work out for you. And thanks so much for chatting with me and Nora today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Okay. Thank you, Back Nora. You. All right. Well, that was us. Uh, so I guess what we're hearing from Nora Grace Flood on the ground is that they're going to dismantle Tent City today by the boulevard. That's by the West River. That encampment. There's been a lot of robust public discussion about where the homeless should live. At what point does it infringe on other people's rights and their own safety? Or what rights should homeless people have? And it's been a tough decision for the city. They, I guess what I'm hearing now from Nora and Suki is that they're going to pull the plug and have people move. So it's, stay tuned to the New Haven Independent because I'm positive that Nora Grace Flood is going to have that story. We're going to take a little break here so Harry can tee us up for the 10 o'clock hour. This is Paul Bass. I'm filling in for Babs Rolls Ivy on Love Babs Love Talk. When we come back, we're going to talk a little more about climate tech and what happened, banks, but more about a new place in New Haven that's hatching companies that are seeking to combat climate change. A place called Climate Haven with Ryan Diggs, who's the director. And then we're going to pivot to shape note singing because there's an event tomorrow night about that. And the chair of the Department of Music at Yale, Ian Quinn, is going to help us out. So we got a lot to talk about and explore a lot of words, worlds and the uh, other and the order. So stick with us at WNHHFM. Let me see what we're going to queue up here. 
Hi, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. While COVID may not stop a baby's heart, isn't a child with a rising fever, cough, and chills enough to make your heart skip a beat? Children are 19% of reported COVID cases, with higher rates in Hispanic and Black children. Vaccinated six months to five-year-olds are 80% less likely to get COVID, which means 80% healthier New Haven one-year-olds and 100% happier New Haven parents. To learn more, visit nhvvax.org. Hello. 